0: everybody and welcome to disenfranchised we are a podcast all about uh, those franchises of one those failed franchise starters meant to be something a lot bigger uh didn't end up working out that way i am one of your co-hosts Stephen foxworthy and who's that on the horizon who do i see i don't know let's say his name three times and see if he'll join us brett right brett right brett Wright. how are you doing sir
1: uh hello Stephen. it's showtime thunder doing all right man Uh, i'm doing all right i guess
0: yeah well i'm glad to hear that and i'm glad you're doing all right and i hope you continue to do all right Uh, i hope you're doing all right because we're talking about one of your favorite movies today uh brett what movie are we talking about
1: uh we are talking about one of one of my favorite movies growing up one of my favorite movies of all time uh we're talking about beetlejuice
0: tim burton's 1988 classic Beetlejuice starring Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, Michael Keaton, Winona Ryder, Catherine O'Hara, registered sex offender Jeffrey Jones, Glenn Shattuck's, uh Robert Goulet is in there somewhere, Dick Cavett. It's a great cast, it's a great movie, and it was intended to start a franchise, Brett.
1: Um, apparently, I mean, they've been talking about a sequel for. Uh, like we mentioned last episode they've been talking about a sequel for three decades now so that's yeah. true
0: that's true they have been talking about a sequel this is one of those i'm not sure if it was intended to start a franchise but the the intention to turn it into a franchise was certainly there so i think we're going to allow it on that respect and it fits very well into our halloween or october spookython uh because it is uh, a a horror comedy movie
1: a very funny Horror comedy probably leans more on the comedy than the horror, really.
0: Oh, most assuredly it does. Uh and later on in the episode we'll talk about some of our favorite horror comedies. Uh, but for uh start of things, uh Brett, what is your history with uh Beetlejuice as a property, as a film, as a franchise? Uh what's your history with the Tim Burton of it all? Tell us tell us a little bit about your thoughts and feelings with regard to Mr. Juice.
1: Um, yeah, so I, I was only four years old when this movie came out. Um, so, so you did I, not see it in theaters? I, I did not. Uh, it was, I was a little too young. Um, so I, I don't even remember when I saw it for the first time. Um, it had to have been in syndication um, some, at some point. Uh, and I, it's funny that I remember looking back now, watching it, and remembering the jokes that I didn't get when I was a kid. <laughs> but remembering the dialogue enough and remembering the jokes enough to get them now and look back and go, oh, okay, I get
0: that joke now. <laughs> wow, that was really dark. Or wow, that's in a kid's movie?
1: Yeah. Or or the more subtle jokes. Sure. That, that maybe that maybe even adults don't even get. Um Uh-oh. But yeah, so I I I grew up loving the movie. And I would probably I'd blame um, my uh, attraction to uh, goth females on Winona Ryder. Um, I was going to
0: say that this has to have been an activating film for you in that regard.
1: Yeah, me and a lot of people. I think it really. Uh,
0: you're not alone, obviously. Like millennials sure. our age, if if they have that attraction to goth females. I mean, this movie essentially created the hot topic aesthetic uh, all on its own. So
1: yeah, do with uh, that what you will. One hundred percent, and and then after that, like I I became pretty obsessed with the cartoon, uh, the Saturday morning cartoon that spun off of this movie.
0: I was going to ask if you had any any exposure to that at all.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I had all the toys. uh I even had I had like because you know back in the day for like Ninja Turtles and everything, they they would have a special uh, like carrying case that you would keep your your prized action figures in
0: absolutely uh, the you you were uh, encouraged to collect them all and to ensure that you did you had a carrying case which fit quote-unquote them all or at least the first series or the first two series or what have you
1: yeah and some of them you know they were innocuously shaped you know just regular carrying cases with you know the logo on the front or whatever uh the beetlejuice one was coffin shaped uh and, because of course it was <laughs> because of course it was uh and yeah it was it was great um I had I had Beetlejuice's grave playset.
0: I um, remember that a friend of mine had that. I, I do recall that.
1: Yeah, uh, and so yeah, I, I collected all the toys. I watched the cartoon. I, you know, I don't really think I knew that they were ever talking about a sequel. I think I just kind of dug the aesthetic. And sure,
0: you and and several other people our age.
1: Sure. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Tim Burton, going to Tim Burton.
0: In... At least, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and this is for I'll I'll probably get into it a bit later. This is the movie that kind of creates the Tim Burton aesthetic, because uh, this is only his second film, and his first film is Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which, aside from kind of the kitschy aesthetic that is very much a part of what he does, like the the German expressionism and and that kind of stuff, really never played into his filmography until Beetlejuice. So. Uh, I mean, this this is our really th- America's first taste of Tim Burton, and boy, howdy did we like what we were eating with Beetlejuice!
1: Yeah, this this wasn't a taste. That was a, this was full on Tim Burton three course meal.
0: Yeah, uh, and and, and uh, we'll get in, we'll get into it a bit later. I've, I've got um, some some thoughts with regard to uh, the most Tim Burton movie. I don't think this is quite the most Tim Burton movie, but it's. Pretty close to being the most Tim Burton movie. Um, while, while we're talking about, while we're on the subject of Tim Burton, Brett, what is uh, what are your feelings with regard to Tim Burton?
1: Uh, very influential. Uh, as, as mentioned about my attraction to the goth persuasion. Um, also, just, you know, the goth aesthetic in general was something I, I was really into uh, when I was younger still I'm into now not to the level that like you know going out decked in black um but you know I I still I still dig that aesthetic I I still I myself am still strange and unusual um
0: that was the line that I went oh right this movie did trigger the entire hot topic thing mm
1: -hmm. like
0: that that line her saying I am myself strange and unusual I was like oh right hot topic okay that makes sense
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah. So, you know, I love, I love all the Tim Burton's movies. Uh, some more than others. obviously. Sure. But
0: do you have a favorite Tim Burton movie and is I- it Beetlejuice? Uh,
1: yes. And yes.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. So we are, we're talking about one of your favorite films today.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if it makes my top five. It might make my top five favorite movies of all time Um, we never
0: did get to do our top five movies of all time list over on the uh over on the we got five on it blog did we
1: no we didn't Uh, we never made it we stopped
0: like two decades short (laughs) we were almost there we almost made it
1: yeah so hey maybe that's something we'll discuss on this very podcast
0: hey maybe one day we'll get there who knows um, maybe on a milestone episode or something like our, our one year anniversary or our hundredth episode or something, who knows um, myself? Beetlejuice was not a movie that I saw until last year for the first time. I had never seen it uh, because as I've mentioned, maybe once or twice before on this podcast, I grew up in a, in a fairly conservative religious household and anything that involved um Dead coming back to life through uh, less than miraculous means uh, was viewed as uh, satanic. Uh, my parents were uh, very much uh, into or against, I should say, the or I, I don't know. The satanic panic had an influence on our household growing up, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, that that uh, popular trend of the 1980s in which uh, people were afraid that the devil was in everything. That that was certainly something that was alive and well in my household growing up. So uh, I, I did not watch Beetlejuice, had no exposure to Beetlejuice, uh, was vaguely aware of the cartoon, uh, but beyond like seeing commercials for it and collecting uh, the, the kids meal toys at whatever restaurant they were at. I want to say it was Burger King, but I don't know that for sure. Don't quote me on that.
1: I'm pretty uh, sure it was.
0: Yeah, but whatever restaurant had the kids meal toy, because I was an avid kids meal eater growing up. I had maybe one or two of those little toys uh, without really knowing what that show was or what it was about. I knew he was called the ghost with the most and I knew he looked pretty gross, but that was all I knew about Beetlejuice until uh, years later when I eventually would see the movie. And my first thought about uh, upon seeing the movie last year was uh, one, Hey, Alec Baldwin's in this. And uh, two, Man, this is this is really good. Uh, it is probably it's easily in my top five Tim Burton movies without question. Um, it's it's a very good movie, and I very much enjoyed it. I watched it only the second time uh, for this episode uh, about a week ago. This I will tell you this episode has had more uh, production delays than an average uh, film that we discuss on this podcast because uh, oh boy, we've been trying to do this episode for over a week now, and we're finally getting into it.
1: Yeah, maybe and, that'll teach us for saying Beetlejuice three times before we record.
0: It, look, man, it, it really can't be avoided. You can't, you can't go without saying the title of the film. It's pretty difficult to do. Uh, should we have done it before we started recording? I'll let our audience decide when they hear this episode in its entirety. <laughs> uh, so uh, that having been said, um, oh, and uh, Tim Burton for me—not a favorite director. Um, I am. I'm more of a uh, substance over style guy and Tim Burton is a director that reeks of style over substance for me. So he's not one of my favorites, but when he's working really well, I really enjoy his films. Uh, Beetlejuice is great. I I cannot help but adore Mars Attacks. Um, that movie just sings to me in just mm, that, that, that movie is my sweet spot. Obviously, I love his Batman films. Those are classics. Uh, but by and large, Tim Burton, I can take him or leave him for the most part. Which hurts Brett's heart, but what are you going to do?
1: Yeah, how dare you? How dare you, sir? <laughs> style, style over substance, how dare you, sir?
0: I mean, that guy is all aesthetic, man. He, he, I mean, all of his movies, you can look at a scene from a Tim Burton movie and go, oh, that's a Tim Burton movie. You can look at a <laughs> shot from a Tim Burton movie and go, oh, that's a Tim Burton movie.
1: Well, that's sure. what I mean. Well, but just because he has style doesn't mean he can't have substance. You're saying it's like one with one has to happen without the other. Porcay no those shows, buddy. I'm not look, I'm
0: not because I love stylistic filmmaking. I love as you know, I love David Lynch, I love Orson Welles. Uh, you know, I those guys have a style and you can and it's easily identifiable. But there's a lot more going on than just hey, look at this cool stuff I'm doing. Um, And I don't think Tim Burton movies really tend to get that deep. It's all about the weird character designs and the cool stuff he can put on screen. And honestly, there's a lot of that in this movie. And I love it in this movie. It works really well in this movie. It doesn't work as well in other of his films. Um, But then again, I've also not seen all of Tim Burton's oeuvre at this point. So what do I know? I will say the one big activator Tim Burton movie for me weirdly was his remake of planet of the apes speaking of movies that we will eventually cover on this podcast at some point
1: wow that one huh
0: that one yeah i was look i grew up being a huge planet of the apes fan. look we'll get into it on that episode but i liked planet of the apes i still like planet of the apes it's a great franchise uh but i saw that movie in theaters my friend in theaters and honestly, that is probably one of the movies that lacks a lot of his aesthetic touches. I, I'm not saying it's a good movie, and I'm not going to defend it right here, right now. Uh, but for whatever reason, that was a Tim Burton movie that I, at one point in my life, really, really went for, for good or ill. It doesn't speak well for me, I know, I realize. But you know what? I also saw future episode Lost in Space in theaters multiple times. So what do I know? Yeah. Yikes. I'm pretty much just shooting my credibility right in the foot right now.
1: Yeah. Maybe you should quit while you're ahead. Let's move on. But you know what?
0: I do enjoy Beetlejuice. So there you go. I will I will say that definitively and with all the authority I have left, which is not much, but I do enjoy Beetlejuice. Do with that what you will. Um, I, let's let's quit talking around it. Let's start talking about this movie. Uh, let's start talking about. Yes, that's right. Beetlejuice. Um, but to do that, we have to do the plot in 60 seconds because we can't really get into the context until we've gotten into the plot of the thing. Uh, and so to do that, we need to flip our coin to determine who of us is going to give the plot in 60 seconds. And here's the toss. Brett, call it in the air. Tails. And it is head, sir. So you have, for the third week in a row, the distinct privilege of... Giving us the plot of 1988's Beetlejuice. This is the fourth,
1: this, this is the fourth week in a row, by the way. Oh, is it really? Oh, that's awesome. I haven't uh, I haven't won a coin flip since Alita. Oh man! Well, <laughs> hey, I mean
0: I mean I I'm just very proud of myself because this is the first week that I've remembered how coin tosses work. So <laughs> I am I'm very proud of myself <laughs> right so now.
1: You're winning in a different way.
0: I am. I am. And you're you're winning in the very real sense that you have now 60 seconds, which are currently on the clock, to regale us with the plot of Beetlejuice. Uh, are you ready, sir?
1: Yeah, sure. Why not?
0: Okay, I will give you your 30 and 10 second uh, warnings. Your time starts now.
1: Okay, so the Maitlands are uh, renovating their house. Uh, they decide to head down to their uh, own hardware store uh, to pick up some supplies. Um, On their way back, they crash because of a dog. The dog never gets its comeuppance, by the way. That's pretty dumb. Uh, And so they come back to their house, and they're apparently dead. Uh, So they're a little confused. Um, And so uh, some time goes by inexplicably. And a new new family's moving in uh, by the name of Dietz's. They're going to remodel the whole place. So in a bit of desperation, they summon Beetlejuice, um, who is a... A uh, bio exorcist who wants to get rid of the Dietzes. Um Some stuff happens that doesn't really go well. Um, and then Beetlejuice gets rid of them. Tries Ten to seconds. Go, tries to marry Lydia. That doesn't happen. They banish him back to the world and they coexist happily ever after. And with two seconds
0: left, you have done it once again. All right, so there's the plot, more or less. You spent like the first thirty seconds talking about the first five minutes of that movie. There's a, is... a lot of setup, and then it kind of just coasts. Do you want to know how I had planned to start if I had gotten it? No, the no. Maitlands die.
1: See, there, you That's... need more. You need more setup than that, man. You got to explain Do you? a little bit more. Look, I mean, you know, we have different approaches to this whole sixty seconds thing. Maybe one day you'll get to do it. <laughs> Maybe one day I'll
0: get to do it again. Maybe next week, and I, I shudder to think about what that'll look like because uh, we haven't even seen the movie. Neither of us has seen the movie we're talking about next week, but that is spoilery talk for the end of this episode. Um, but yeah, there's there's essentially the plot of the film Beetlejuice. Um, yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, about this movie. Uh, you mentioned the dog, by the way, and I, I just wanted I just something that occurred to me as I was watching this movie uh, that the Maitlands ultimately die attempting to prevent the beginning of the film
1: Frankenweenie. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's clear. So, I mean, the
0: Maitlands die so Frankenweenie can live. What? What? That's that's ultimately what I got left with. But yeah, so uh, this, as we mentioned before, is Tim Burton. It's only his second film. His first film was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And this was really his opportunity to kind of play around and uh, do a lot of the things that we have come to expect from Tim Burton, uh, namely the reliance on the German Expressionism uh, that I I love. I love German Expressionism. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Nosferatu, um, Metropolis, Destiny. I love German Expressionism. Certified Bangers, all. Um, But, I mean, Tim, as much as I enjoy German Expressionism, Tim Burton really enjoys German Expressionism. And a lot of the reason he relies on those tropes is because ultimately his budget wasn't very big for special effects on this movie. So he decided to just lean into the fact that he had so little and decided to make everything look as cheap as possible. And that kind of helps to define the Burton aesthetic in a way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't even really look that cheap, honestly. You can't tell that he doesn't have that big of a budget. I mean, the special effects for the time aren't that bad. I mean, the, C- the CGI is a little wonky, but that's, I mean, it's the late 80s. What do you expect? Sure.
0: Um, but I mean, his, his reliance on stop motion, when really that had gone out of favor, more or less with the death of Ray Harryhausen. Uh, I mean, the last really big studio movie to use... Uh, Those kind of effects, uh, stop motion effects, to that extent was Clash of the Titans in 1981. So we're talking seven years previous. Um, But you really get to see Burton leaning on his uh, love of animation. I mean, he got started uh, at Disney in the animation department. He was one of the animators who got fired uh, off of The Hound, which was Disney's big movie of 1988, the year this came out. So, I mean, it, it all comes full circle, but you get to see kind of Burton uh, exploring his love of animation uh, used with the, you know, the stop motion Beetlejuice snake and the sand, the sandworms and all that good stuff. Sandworms, I was thinking of Dune a lot during the Saturn scenes, by the way.
1: Yeah. and And I'm I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that was his inspiration for those.
0: I mean, the way the faces kind of fold out, it, it almost seems like it would have to be a part of the inspiration for that.
1: Yeah. And uh, what's funny, though, is, I mean, he brings back stop-motion animation just a few years after this movie with remember Before Christmas.
0: Right. Which many people seem to forget he did not direct. That was Henry Selick that directed that one. But he did produce it, and his name was above the title on that one. It came from, uh, based on a poem that he had written, I believe, uh, if memory serves. Um, But yeah, I mean, and then he goes on to explore it even further in The Corpse Bride later in his career. So, I mean, Tim Burton's love of stop motion. Like I said, this we see in this movie kind of all the things that make Tim Burton, Tim Burton. And he's kind of testing a lot of them out and flexing them and using them for the first time. So it really this is the movie that gives us our first taste or our first three course meal, as you mentioned earlier, of Tim Burton such so, you know such as it is like we and we ate it up man we we found ourselves that we were also strange and unusual and so hot the hot topic generation was born man
1: oh well, i mean i don't know if it was born here it was definitely born when nightmare before christmas came out that's for sure
0: but i mean there is no nightmare before christmas without this
1: uh, true um you will still find both of these properties alive and well in a Hot Topic store nowadays, though.
0: So. Yeah, I would think that in October, there's probably one Hot Topic somewhere that's open. And if not, you can probably find both of those properties at a Halloween store near you because those are everywhere right now.
1: Uh, also true. But, you know, be sure, wear a mask, social distance, et cetera. Absolutely.
0: But- or order online. I'm sure Hot Topic ship from a, a warehouse somewhere.
1: Oh, they do. Yeah, they have a very robust online store. They're having a sale right now, I believe, for Halloween stuff. They're also trying real hard to stay afloat right now, so they have, like, a different sale every week. So.
0: Everyone is, man. Everyone is. But, you know, that's that's what happens.
1: For sure. Also, also, fun fact, um, if, you yeah, are, be- if you are in it, well, not for you in particular, but uh, if you are in and around um, any of the Universal Studios locations, you um, they are open, uh, very ill-advisedly, in my opinion, but they're open, um, and the uh, while Hol- Halloween Horror Nights is not going on in and of itself, the gift shop for said Halloween Horror Nights is open, and they have lots of good Beetlejuice merch this year.
0: Okay, I dig that. That'd be fun. Yeah. Cool. Um... So I read in my discovery is that when Burton was originally going for this move, or first of all, Burton was not the first choice of director. Let's, let's, let's start there. Uh, Do you know who they wanted originally, Brett? I do not. Uh, Interestingly enough, they wanted another canonically great American director. Uh, Wes Craven uh, was who they had their eye on for this film. Uh, The original script was actually much darker uh, the original McDowell script was 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 a lot darker than uh, what ended up being filmed, and it was Burton and uh, uh, Warren Scarin, S K A A R E N, uh, was his guy that he brought in. Th- uh, he was the one that injected a lot of the humor in it. But the original Michael McDowell script uh, was a lot more horror focused and horror driven. Um, there was a, a child in it. Like the Dieses had two children, a an older daughter Lydia. And it was the younger daughter who was able to see the Maitlands, um, and uh, uh, Beetlejuice attempts to, uh, to to rape Lydia at one point. Like it's just a much darker script. So you can see why they would have wanted uh, Wes Craven in for something like that, particularly because he's already uh, directed a film with another canonically great '80s horror icon, uh, Freddy Krueger, uh, and Freddie and Beetlejuice are. You know, with obvious differences, uh, cut from at least a somewhat similar cloth. Uh, that is to say, uh, ghouls in striped clothing, at least. Yeah. Who are able to take on many different forms?
1: Sure. I. I uh, and and maybe that version of Beetlejuice may have been a little bit closer, um, but this one this one is definitely a lot more. Uh, how do I want to put it? Uh, more. Wiley Coyote, I guess, than sure. Freddy Krueger. Yeah, um, oh, definitely. And
0: um, but I mean, it's and I, but again, I think this would have been a very different movie had it ultimately been Craven behind the behind the camera than Burton. I think Burton kind of brings his own aesthetic and his own, um, I guess, sense of storytelling, uh, whereas Craven, uh, and we, Craven does horror comedy very differently, which we ultimately end up seeing in. New Nightmare and Scream, respectively.
1: Yeah, I, I think I would refer to Tim Burton's style as more whimsy, it's more whimsical.
0: <laughs> Definitely, yeah. That's uh, that's probably the right way to look at it.
1: Um, and honestly, I I don't know if that original version might have it, it done any good at all. Like it just it seems way too dark, and it's, it seems like almost Hellraiser like. Uh, yeah,
0: I don't think it would have worked very well.
1: No, no, I think you 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 do you can do a lot with the the lore and the aesthetic of this movie and the ideas in the story uh you can do that a lot better when you're not trying to be an edge lord about it, sure,
0: sure, uh, which is important to know it is yeah. Speaking of Edgelord, I think Dante's Inferno Room might be the horniest thing in any Tim Burton movie ever. <laughs> uh not I mean, really not really one to, to put sex in his movies a lot or at all. Uh so I think that scene or that one little bit of the film might be just about as horny as Burton gets.
1: Yeah, but he, he did it in a way that's like funny though. Like Sure. He's it's it's a r it's a real good pun. Uh, it is. It's great, which, which I love. Um, and yeah. and and Beetlejuice is—you uh, could almost say he's—he's he's literally horny. Like he has the spikes coming off of him. So like it's sure. It's it's very tongue-in-cheek.
0: Yeah, but. I mean, and that character certainly is. I mean, he's just the id run wild. But I honestly, I chalk that more to Michael Keaton than I do to Tim Burton because that feels, while certainly very Burton-esque in his um, design, very, very Michael Keaton in terms of his portrayal. I think IMDb Trivia said that Michael Keaton improvised about 90% of his dialogue for this movie, and you can tell, because it feels like he's in a completely different movie, but it absolutely works within the world of this film, because while it does feel like Keaton is in a completely different movie, It's a movie that you really are excited to see all the other characters be a part of. Like he shows up, and you're like, "Oh, great! Now we get to see more of his movie." And all these other characters have to try to keep up with what he's doing and try to interact with his really manic, over the top energy that he's bringing to this role. And it it's kind of a bridge for Keaton in between his like '80s comedy run and his late '80s, early '90s. attempt at more dramatic fare before ultimately he kind of falls off the edge and, and disappears for the better part of a decade.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, and while, while I'm, while I've always wanted to say that I wanted to see more Beetlejuice in this movie, I think it's, it's a good thing that we don't, I mean, the, if, if he was in this movie more, you might've gotten tired of that energy. Uh, for sure. But as it is now, like you leave the audience wanting more, right? Like you don't absolutely.
0: want absolutely. Yeah, there's just enough of him in this movie.
1: Yeah, it's because uh, every every scene he's in, you know, you got a smile on your face. You're loving it. Uh, the the Are You Qualified monologue is just some top tier. I've seen The Exorcist about 157 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single every time. Every single time
0: I see, I see it. I love it. It's so good. It's great. I love it. Uh, that monologue in particular, that's the one that I think there is no way that was scripted for him. That feels like something that just feels like pure Keaton just rattling that stuff off the top of his head. Um, and it, it just it like I said, it just works so well because you're like, who is this? guy and, and you don't know a lot about him Like, you don't know how he died. You don't know why he went into this line of work beyond, you know, just that he didn't get along with the, the people that the, the, the people in the, the, bureaucra- the bureaucracy of the ghost world. Um, But beyond that, like, he's very much a mystery character, but he's a wild card. And you that's the kind of energy that this film feels like it needs at every just every time he shows up. You're like, finally, it's Beetlejuice again. I love this guy. And it it just I think it works really well.
1: Yeah. And what's funny, there's there is more lower in some of the original scripts about how he killed himself. What you know, why? What he what he did before this. Um, It was like a lost
0: love. I think something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was that uh, he did like he hung himself um, over a woman. That's why he became Juno's assistant, which does Mm -hmm. get talked about in the movie, you know, and then he went rogue Um, and, you know, the, the bureaucracy of the afterlife doesn't really like when ghosts go rogue. Uh,
0: Which, I mean, all of that is, is great. And I
1: think they give you just
0: enough of his backstory they give you just enough to to keep you from getting overwhelmed by it, but you know, not enough to, or not, they, they leave you with enough questions to, to leave some mystery and mystique about the character, which I think works in his favor.
1: Yeah. Which they sort of do with all the lore in this movie. They give you just a taste in, in, in dialogue um, and a little bit more of a taste in background and, you know, the sets <laughs> and whatnot. Um, it's it's some subtle storytelling that I'm just a hundred percent here for,
0: right? And I mean that surprises me a little bit because usually you're the the deep lore guy. The deeper the lore, the better. And and here the lore is not very deep. The lore is pretty uh, pretty sparse.
1: I mean it is, but I, there I don't know whether lore, what other lore you get into, right? Like I know I know there's more um, in uh, in the sequel. The ideas for the sequel that we'll talk about later, um, where Lydia's traveling to all the different different types of underworlds or afterlifes. But I mean, for right now, I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you die, you go to a waiting room. If you killed yourself, you serve for the rest of your life. Um, and that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. It seems like, you know, ghosts hang out wherever they died at. Now, after that, what happens? Nobody knows. But I mean, nobody knows that now. So,
0: sure. I mean, and that's why this is such a great fodder for, Uh, This this kind of treatment is there's a lot of stuff there to play with. Um, As hard as it is to imagine anyone else but Michael Keaton playing Beetlejuice, he was not Burton's first choice or really the studio's first choice. Uh, Do you have some information about who some other potential Beetlejuices were?
1: Um, Not for Beetlejuice. No, I have some other potentials for the rest of the cast, but not him.
0: Oh, I've got the Beetlejuices then. Okay, I thought you would have had that. So I was going to let you lead. Um, but no, uh, Burton originally wanted his favorite childhood actor, Mr. Sammy Davis Jr. to play Beetlejuice, which, uh, I don't know what that would have been. I really don't. I, here's the thing. There are so many different, you, you listen to all the different ideas that people had for this movie and you, I think if any one of those things had changed, it wouldn't have been as good of a movie personally, I think, um, John Peters, the infamous producer of uh, Superman Lives and uh, other random Wild Wild West future episode, uh, originally wanted Sam Kinison, like famous screaming stand-up comic Sam Kinison, for the title role. But uh, Sam Kinison's agent never told him about it, so he never did it. Uh, According to the IMDb trivia, uh, some of the more notable other actors considered were Jack Nicholson, uh, Robin Williams, Bill Murray. Dudley Moore, and this is the most puzzling of all of them, Arnold Schwarzenegger? I don't know what that movie is.
1: It's, it's not Beetlejuice, I'll tell
0: you that. Right, yeah. How does Arnold Schwarzenegger... And, and here's the thing. I think I think at, at this point in time, the late 80s, because he's come up for a couple of other things as well. The name's the, for Koopa at one point as well, which we talk about in our Super Mario Brothers episode. Um, I think at this point, he is just one of those actors who you consider and you ask because he can get you the budget you need to make the movie. And even if you're not really seriously considering him, or even if not really right for any of the roles you, you consider him and you throw it out to him. And if he takes it great, then you've got your funding. And if not, okay, well, then we can move on to someone who's probably more right for that part. Uh, And I mean, that's the only way that I can explain his casting in like Batman and Robin. Because that doesn't make any sense. Like, no iteration of the character of Mr. Freeze looks like Arnold, or sounds like Arnold. So, I mean, it just—it doesn't make sense to me at all. Um, but it just seems like that's something you do because he can get you your money. He's the biggest star in the world for a number of years until he's not all of a sudden.
1: That's very true. That's very true. And and there's a good there's a good possibility that they just. That's the only reason they threw that name out there. They never had any real intention to cast him in that role. They were just I mean,
0: like, he's fundamentally I mean, wrong for it.
1: Well, yeah. So, hey, we might be able to get Arnold Schwarzenegger for this movie. You want to give us some more money? Right. Yeah. Um,
0: and, I mean, that's just it. Like, these are people the studios considered, but not necessarily people that they asked or pursued. So, I mean, uh, that's just like throwing names at a chalkboard, you know, or throwing names at a dartboard, rather. You don't really throw names at chalkboards. Um, throwing names into a hat i don't know pick pick your euphemism there i guess but You're
1: throwing names at a thing
0: throwing names into a thing um but yeah th- and that's really ultimately what it kind of sounds like uh that a lot of these things are uh honestly the the only one of those i think that would have been anywhere close to doing what Keaton does, and even then, not terribly close at all. Would be Robin Williams is probably the only one that could probably match that level of energy. But again, that's a completely different movie,
1: right? Um, which is funny. So, some of the other talking about this, they um, they considered Alyssa Milano for Lydia.
0: I did, I did read that,
1: um, and they considered Angelica Houston for uh, for Catherine O'Hara's part,
0: which I think she would have been a little too severe for that role yeah and and from what i understand katherine o'hara is like one of the first people that signed on for this movie uh, i i've read different reports some people said it was Catherine o'hara first some people said it was gina davis first but one of those two signed on for the movie first and that let other people know it was okay to like get behind the script that didn't that none of them really understood that didn't make sense to any of them
1: right so yeah ultimately i think this is a perfect storm of casting, as well as For some sure. other things. But this, this is a perfect storm of casting that if if just one person is off, the whole thing is just it falls apart.
0: Absolutely, I completely agree with you. This this movie doesn't work if these people aren't in these roles. The, another weird thing that I, I I remembered weirdly watching this movie this time is that Alec Baldwin is the lead of this movie, ostensibly. His is the first name in the credits but you never think about him being in this movie, or at least I never did. Even before I saw it, I never thought, oh, well, Alec Baldwin's in that movie, obviously. It's just never really something that occurred to me. And that thought led me down an even deeper rabbit hole of what happened to Alec Baldwin as a conventional Hollywood leading man, because he he was obviously kind of being groomed for that, but it never really happened. And to hear Baldwin himself talk about it it's because he is either overshadowed by a much bigger star in his own movie, or the movies themselves are just bad. So I went to IMDb, every movie podcaster's best friend, and I tracked his his career, starting with his first leading role, which would have been 1988's Beetlejuice, this movie we're talking about right now. After this, he does Hunt for Red October, which he is the lead of. Sean Connery gets first billing and has the better role. So it's a Sean Connery movie that Alec Baldwin happens to be in, but he is the lead character in that movie. Uh, And then just a lot of really forgettable films. Miami Blues, The Marrying Man, Prelude to a Kiss, Malice, The Getaway, future episode of this podcast, The Shadow, uh, The Juror, Heaven's Prisoners, uh, and then you get Ghosts of Mississippi, which was a really big movie. But the star of that movie was James Woods, or he was the one that overshadowed Baldwin. Baldwin's the lead, but James Woods is the one that gets all the attention. I think gets nominated for an Oscar for that movie, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, he's in The Confession, Thick as Thieves, and finally, and that 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 pretty much takes him through the '90s. I mean, that's his '90s run right there, uh, excluding like. Movies like Glengarry Glen Ross, where he's a part of an ensemble um, or plays like a, a secondary or tertiary character or a narrator. Um, but he ends that run in 2000 with Thomas and the Magic Railroad, uh, which in which he plays both the narrator and Mr. Conductor um, and then State in Maine, which is a David Mamet movie where he is part of, again, part of an ensemble. He basically becomes an ensemble player. He becomes like part of the group or a supporting player. He gets nominated for an Oscar later for a supporting role in the movie, the cooler. But after that, he pretty much is a supporting player or an ensemble player really until you get to 30 rock. And then he, people remember, Oh, Alec Baldwin's funny. And then he basically just does that for the rest of his career in that and in you know, the odd Martin Scorsese movie, but he's more or less an ensemble or supporting player for the rest of his career after 2000.
1: That's pretty fascinating because I, I'm going to be honest with you, you No, know, I'm not the biggest movie buff. Um, I love movies, don't get me wrong, but I only recognized The Shadow mm-hmm. and Ghost of Mississippi out of that entire list of movies you rattled off.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are there are a couple more that I recognize, Thomas and the Magic Railroad, but... And Thomas and the Magic Railroad, I just know because it was a contender for a future episode of this podcast. But beyond that, I mean, right, these movies are largely forgettable.
1: So it's kind of amazing that he he managed to, he made a comeback. But here's the
0: thing, he never like stopped working. He was always working fairly consistently. Um, he just had to kind of modify his, his own persona to fit, I mean, to, to basically find where he could fit and still be successful which you see actors doing all the time. There are are certain actors who just don't really take well to being leading men. Um, You know, they're better at supporting players. Like the best Brad Pitt performances are not Brad Pitt as lead. They're Brad Pitt as like the crazy psychopath in 12 monkeys. Like that's the stuff I'm going to see Brad Pitt doing. Uh, Johnny Depp, very much the same way. Like he, the really weird characters, that's the stuff he really likes to play. Uh, leading man, the leading man persona really never fit well for Johnny Depp or for Brad Pitt, in my mind. Other people will probably disagree with me, and that's fine. But like those guys, just don't seem like your typical Hollywood leading man. And and Baldwin, I think, fits into that category as well.
1: I think I would mostly agree with you. There's some notable exceptions because I think Johnny Depp does fine as the lead in the Pirates movies, and I think Brad Pitt but does I great would... as the lead in Interview with the Vampire.
0: I would argue in that first movie, uh, the first Pirates movie, he is a support player that got all the attention because his, his arc in that movie is completely secondary to Will Turner. Will Turner is supposed to be the hero of that movie, but Orlando Bloom is such a blank slate that it never happens that way. And Captain Jack is just so big and larger than life that obviously Johnny Depp was going to be our takeaway from that. Uh, As to interview with the vampire, I think Brad Pitt is fine But his is not the performance that anyone remembers from that movie. It's Tom Cruise as Lestat. Like that's that's it's very similar to an Alec Baldwin October situation, where yeah, he may be technically the lead, but he gets overshadowed by a much more famous co-star.
1: Yeah, we're gonna agree to disagree on that one. But fair enough. I'm not I'm not there for Tom Cruise's Lestat. I mean I am, because it's great, but I still remember brad pitt as louis like it's just they're yeah whatever that's fine you know it's fine you can have your opinion it's okay
0: (laughs) and you can have yours even if it's wrong it's fine
1: that's true yeah It's
0: it's fine um uh but yeah and then as um barbara maitland uh we have gina davis who also has a really weird arc to her career Because with Gina Davis, there's a very notable rise and fall with Gina Davis, where she's like building, 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 building. This is toward the beginning of her upward swing in Hollywood. And then she makes two movies that absolutely tank her. And she basically gets relegated to whatever happened to status really quickly after that. Because, I mean, it's The Fly, Beetlejuice, Earth Girls Are Easy, Thelma and Louise, A League of Their Own, several others. I'm just kind of hitting highlights here. And then in 1997, you get Rennie Harlan, who was her husband at the time. Rennie Harlan's Cutthroat Island, which is a notorious box office bomb. Uh, And then right after that, the year after, The Long Kiss Goodnight, which is Shane Black's famous box office bomb. And that one-two punch pretty much puts her out of commission. The next time we see Gina Davis in a movie after that is not until 1999. Okay, I said Cutthroat Island was 97, it's actually 95, because I'm a big dummy. Uh, and then Long Kiss Goodnight was 96. We don't see her till 99 in Stuart Little as the mom. She has a very short-lived sitcom, The Gina Davis Show from 2000 to 2001, followed by Stuart Little 2 in 2002, and then it's a guest role on Will & Grace in 2004. Um, of the voice of Mrs. Little in, in Stuart Little 3, the animated film, I guess. I guess it was animated. Um, the her very short-lived show, Commander-in-Chief, 2005, 2006. And then it's movies that no one sees. Like, it just, she vanishes. Like, for, for all intents and purposes, Gina Davis is gone after that. And so it's just, like, two movies pretty much ruined <clears throat> her career after that. And she never really manages to make a comeback, although she is in the new She-Ra and the Princess of Power show, which I've heard is very good. Uh, she's in a few episodes of that. And she's also in that Netflix uh, show, Glow, which I've also heard is very good. So It
1: is. I can confirm that one. It is very good.
0: Okay, And that does a couple years on Grey's Anatomy, which is a show I've heard is very popular, though I have not seen much
1: of it. I so, confirm or deny that either.
0: I mean, she's been working, but nowhere near as consistently or as at the same high profile level. As she was in the late '80s, early to mid '90s, like that—that that run is a pretty great one that she has there. And unfortunately, after that, she just kind of vanishes, and we don't really see her much anymore, which is unfortunate.
1: It is she knocked it out of the park there for like five or six years, just yeah, banger after banger. And then mm-hmm. she made some bad decisions, and that—that—that that sucks. Like that it does. It's something that Hollywood can do to you. You just you make a couple bad decisions. And you're not a star anymore.
0: Yep. And that's, that's literally all it comes down to sometimes.
1: It's very unfortunate.
0: I've been doing a lot of talking, Brett. You have anything you want to want to throw out about this movie that you love? Any other uh, context or deep lore?
1: Um, I mean, there's, you know, I, I talked to briefly about like the, the visual storytelling that and I really, I'd like to touch on it more because I think that's one of the best things about this movie. The stuff that, you you might it's, it's some of that stuff you you see on a second or third viewing right it's uh it's the stuff like you can see all of the the people in the waiting room you can tell how they died mm-hmm. just by looking at them and it's it's stuff that I I, I didn't even notice um, until like later viewings where like you can you can see how Juno died uh she's got like the the tracheotomy scar in her neck It's that smoke is coming out of that you don't really notice right away.
0: Oh, that's not a tracheotomy. She slit her own throat. But yeah, the very subtle way that the smoke kind of comes out of the of the, oh, out okay. of the slit in her throat.
1: See, I thought it was. Well, I mean, yeah, she's a civil servant, so I guess yeah, she probably did kill herself. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So even now, I'm like, I look, man, I didn't even I didn't notice it when I was a kid. I didn't notice it until later viewings when I was an adult. Um, it's just it's subtle. It's real subtle, and that's that's the sort of uh, stuff I like.
0: It's great. It's great. It is. Uh, one of your favorite scenes in this movie is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, Uh, the dinner scene with the Deo lip sync.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, we can't not talk about that. That's that's, that's not just an iconic scene in this movie. That's an iconic scene of film in general.
0: Sure. It made both of our uh, top five um, lip syncs in movies list. It was your number one and my number three. Um, And it's a great scene. We, we love to see it. And just that moment when there are two moments that crack me up every time when Catherine O'Hara suddenly starts lip syncing Deo with that terrified look on her face gets me every time. And then when Jeffrey Jones, uh, registered sex offender, Jeffrey Jones does the, the black tarantula and does that weird thing with his face and his hands.
1: Mm. Um, it
0: kills me every time. I love it. you love to see it.
1: Yeah. Which is, is funny. I, I've some, I have some, uh, interesting facts about that. So it, uh, it originally, uh, they originally wanted it to be um, an Ink Spot song uh, called If I Didn't Care, um, which I'm not familiar with, so I can't really speak to how that would have worked. But I think it was more of a uh, classic R&B song. Um, and then they also, so on top of that, they wanted to add more, more like singing parts. Uh, they, they wanted to have... Uh, Lydia do when a man loves a woman. And yeah, so they, they really wanted to like, I don't know. I guess they wanted to like turn this into a bit of a musical. It's a little weird.
0: Really? So they wanted Beetlejuice to be a musical?
1: Yeah. Uh, Which is funny because they did that um, very recently.
0: Right. There is actually, or was, I guess I should say prior to, you know, in the before times when live theater was something that people could do. Uh, There was an actual Beetlejuice musical. It was actually playing in New York when I went to New York back in December uh, in the before times. Uh, It was playing there, but we had already committed to seeing Lion King and Sleep No More. If live theater is ever a thing that people can do again, highly recommend both of those shows. But we unfortunately were not able to get to Beetlejuice the musical. And I didn't regret it at the time. And then when you said, oh, we're going to be doing Beetlejuice for the show, I was like, I want you to watch that so I could talk about Beetlejuice the musical the way I talked at length about Evil Dead the musical in our Evil Dead episode a couple weeks ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's fine. You didn't know. How could you have known? Um, I, I didn't. had no way of knowing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I and there isn't really any way to watch it online. You know, I I'm not taking any trips to New York anytime soon or back when it was showing. Sure. Um, we were busy with a trip to Japan instead. So
0: not much live theater in Japan, huh?
1: I mean, there is. It's it's just not things like Beetlejuice. It's not things like Lion King. Uh, you know, it's more traditional live theater,
0: like uh, Kabuki, Bunraku, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, but I did manage to listen to a good chunk of the soundtrack.
0: Okay, uh, that's more than I did.
1: Yeah, and it they they completely changed the story. By the way, don't uh, like that. Um, it's it's still, it, it's funny that it kind of, it goes, it veers a little bit closer to the cartoon in that Beetlejuice and Lydia are kind of friends. Sure. Um, but, and it's, it's very meta. Beetlejuice is meta the whole time. His entire first song called the whole being dead thing is Mm -hmm. just, is just a bunch of meta jokes. Okay. Um, And I can see how that
0: might get really old really quickly, but okay.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's just the one song as far as I know. I don't remember there being there might be some in the non-song dialogue, which I imagine there probably absolutely is. Sure. Um but in song terms, not really. Okay. Um I would I would really like to see it um in person sometime if, you know, that ever is able to be done again.
0: I I hope for all of our sakes that it is. Because live theater is one of my very favorite things. And if we lose it to COVID and the American response thereto, I will be quite put out.
1: Indeed. Uh, Because, I mean, movies Movies are going that way. Not a fan of that.
0: Nope. I I have another thing I could talk about with regard to uh, my theory on Tim Burton's career and his relationship with his muses and or girlfriends. But I'm gonna save that for when we do our Planet of the Apes episode because I think it will actually be more uh, relevant to that discussion.
1: Yeah, this is still early in his career, and I think looking looking at a film later and being able to track that trajectory later on in his career—that's probably a better discussion saved for sure. later.
0: And I th- and I think most people could probably figure out where I'm going with that just based on that description. Uh, so hey, I mean, read into that anything you want. And yes, it's not a perfect theory. I recognize that, but hey, it's just something I'm thinking about. Uh, Brett, your overall uh, thoughts and opinions, final thoughts, if you will, on the Tim Burton film Beetlejuice before we move into our favorite horror comedies.
1: Um, well, uh, I gave it a gave it a four and a half. Um, I don't I don't think it's perfect. It's not a perfect movie. Um, there's definitely some things that haven't aged well. And I mean, you know, having a registered sex offender in your film does knock it down a bit of a couple notches. Um, Burton,
0: Burton casts him a lot. Like a lot. a
1: lot. Yeah. Much. And it, it's, you know, and it's a shame looking back because he, you know, he had a lot of very prominent roles. You know, Ferris Bueller, Beetlejuice. Um, Sleepy Hollow, Houseguest. Yeah. Which I, I really do like Sleepy Hollow. Of course um, you do. Well, yeah. Um, it's a it's
0: a gothic Tim Burton movie. Of course you do.
1: About the headless horseman. I, you know that's it doesn't get much more my aesthetic than that, Stephen.
0: No, it really doesn't.
1: <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I, I gave it a four and a half. Um, what what did you rate it? And then could you please tell us about its box office? I yes, I can do both of those things. So I
0: also rated it four and a half stars for many of the same reasons that you mentioned, um, which is is interesting because usually if there's a film that you have had grown up having a great deal of affection for that I'm just now coming to we usually don't end up coming out the same in terms of overall ranking but uh, on this one we did so that is uh, that's pretty great that's pretty special so
1: you you usually don't rate movies that high so generally I
0: don't it's got to be a really good movie for me to go that high yeah Um, but uh, Beetlejuice is a really good movie so I'm willing to rank it that high it is I think currently my number two or number three Tim Burton movie uh, again, not having covered his entire oeuvre, I don't have a, a solid ranking in place. But uh, as I said before, I do really love Mars Attack. So that's probably going to be my number one, just because it's so crazy. And and the most Burton of all the Burton movies, which I mentioned before, uh, which I, I'm due for a rewatch on because I've not seen it in a long time, is Batman Returns. because and Which, interestingly enough, is the movie that he decides to do instead of Beetlejuice 2. It's it's ultimately the movie that got precedence because they basically told him, look, Tim, you can do whatever you want. And so that is like the none more Burton um, Burton movie, to my thinking, uh, for good or ill. Uh, but that movie has been critically reappraised as being uh, a certified banger. Uh, most people really, really love that movie now. For many, I think it's their favorite of the
1: Batman movies. Uh, not mine, but... Well, sure. I don't know. I haven't seen it for a while. So, I, you know, I may go back. It used to not be my favorite just because I'm a Two-Face fanboy. So Batman Forever was always my favorite. But I, I think if I were to go back and look at it with a more critical eye and not so much as a, hey, it's got my favorite Batman villain in it. Um, I, I also was a big Two-Face fan, which is why
0: I didn't like Batman Forever. But <laughs> that's well, neither here nor there.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, look, like I, I, I absolutely believe if I would go back and watch it now, Batman Returns is probably my favorite.
0: Um, but yeah, they're actually they're all on HBO Max right now. So go check them out. Check them out. Let us know what you think at hashtag #BatmanRatings on Twitter. But uh, Beetlejuice, uh, its domestic gross was seventy-three million dollars. Uh, its worldwide gross, uh, not a great multiplier overseas. Seventy-four million, uh, less than a million dollars it earned overseas. Uh, the worldwide box office very small on that one. Uh, it opened number one. Uh, On April 1st, 1998, uh, number two was a a Neil Simon comedy that had opened the week before, starring Matthew Broderick, called Biloxi Blues, speaking of live theater. uh, The number three movie was called Bright Lights, Big City, which I looked up a week ago when we were originally going to record this episode, and uh, I I, I now no longer know anything about it. But that was uh, the number three movie, also new that week. Uh, number four was The Fox and the Hound, which Burton himself had been fired off of, interestingly enough, in its third weekend. Ah, uh, uh, he showed them. Three weekends in, and he beats them. Uh, and then uh, number five was The Seventh Sign, uh, which, again, was a – oh, no, that was a Demi Moore end-of-the-world Book of Revelation movie. Uh, looked very Gilliam esque. At least the poster attempted to look Gilliam esque. Whether the movie itself was or not, I don't know. But those that, that's your top five on April first, nineteen eighty eight. Uh, and Beetlejuice grosses eight million in its opening weekend. Uh, again, would go on to make seventy four million worldwide. Uh, it's a hit, and the fact that it never got a sequel is kind of weird. But like I mentioned before. Uh, Burton got the chance to do whatever he wanted on, um, on Batman Returns, and so he took the artistic freedom. Uh, but what would a sequel to that movie have been?
1: Uh, so, for all intents and purposes, there's really only ever been one uh, treatment for that sequel. Um, there might have been others since then. I mean, like guess- I
0: there has there's one that was fairly recent. Uh, by Seth Graham Smith, uh, but in terms of what it's about, I don't know. And it's it's been it's happened. It's been a few years ago since that one made the rounds.
1: Yeah. So the original one um, would see the Dietz's, uh purchasing um, a resort that's built on a or a casino, sorry, or a casino resort that's built on an ancient Indian burial ground in Hawaii. Like you uh, do, like you do. Um, and so they go there to oversee that and, you know, Beetlejuice shenanigans, uh, show back up. I mean, it seems to me that, um, the Maitlands wouldn't be in this movie.
0: No, there's no way they could be.
1: Yeah. They're, they're tied to their own house for how many years? 125 years. Something Um, like that. Yeah. So an
0: obscenely long amount of time.
1: Yeah. So they're, they wouldn't have been in this movie, which I think is an interesting choice. For sure.
0: Because they they're really the the heart kind of what grounds that original film.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there's every possibility that they would have been in the beginning at least, you know, saying goodbye to Lydia and the family. Potentially. Uh, potentially. Um, and yeah, so Beetlejuice wins a surfing contest. Lydia travels to all the different different uh, afterlives, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, yeah, so that'd have been interesting. There's like
0: a tidal wave that destroys all of Hawaii, I think, at one point in there. Uh, it's a weird movie. And I think the just from what I could understand, the entire reasoning behind it was because German expressionism and Hawaii aesthetic don't go well together. So that's funny.
1: I mean, I get that. I mean, of. but
0: is, is that is that good enough to base a whole movie on?
1: Uh, well, the, a lot about this sequel is built on... Hey, that's funny. Like the the name, Beetle Just Goes Hawaiian. Hey, that's sure. funny. Sure, sure. Right? Or or a casino in Hawaii built on an Indian burial ground. <laughs> hey, that's funny. That's a funny concept. There's a lot of funny concepts. In that, sure. Like, would it have worked on screen? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it was
0: hilarious when they did it in Poltergeist, so. Sure. Sure, sure.
1: H- hilarious. quote Hilarious.
0: Yeah, that laugh a minute movie. Um, but I mean, honestly, since we've got the Keaton Renaissance going on, um, there has been like renewed talks for another Beetlejuice sequel. It's Keaton's favorite movie of his that he's ever done, so it's possible. Like, it's it's something that could pop up. So
1: it is very similar to what you said about uh, Keanu Reeves. I think if if Keaton wants to materialize a sequel to Beetlejuice, it'll happen.
0: Yeah, I and and that well, I think it'll be Keaton and Burton, um, but honestly, like both of their stars have been a little tarnished of late. So like Keaton never really was able to capitalize on the success of Birdman, his Oscar nomination for that movie, and uh, Burton has kind of been on a downward swing lately. Um, reviews for Dumbo were pretty mixed. Like he seems to be kind of sticking to the Disney sandbox for good or ill. Um, so who's to say whether this will actually show up. Um, but again, if it does, we'll cover it. Cause that's the promise that we've made to you. Let's, let's start talking about uh, horror comedies. So um, we, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, ran a blog for a while called, we got five on it, where we did top five lists. So occasionally we will do top five lists here. Uh, and today uh, in honor of Beetlejuice, we've decided to do our top five horror comedies. Uh, so Brett, what is your number five? horror, comedy.
1: Uh, number five for me is a classic. I, I could not have it on this list. Um, it is uh, Shaun of the Dead. Okay. The, Shaun... the, first, the first of the Cornetto trilogy.
0: Yes, the first of the Edgar Wright films.
1: Yes, uh, which is the Cornetto trilogy. Um, uh, you know, it's got Simon Pegg, Nick Frost doing their thing. It's the a great Empire. movie. Yeah. Um, this this uh, idea for this movie originally sparked from um, one of the first few episodes of Spaced, where they were doing a big old reference to Resident Evil 2. Love it. Yeah, which
0: space great show.
1: Love it 100%.
0: Um, did not quite make my top five, but is a movie I absolutely love. It would have been probably number six or number seven for sure on my list. Uh, my number five, and I hope it doesn't hurt your heart too much to see it here. Uh, my number five is Ghostbusters, 1984, the Ivan Reitman film, Ghostbusters. Um, Bill Murray, Rick Moranis, Harold Ramis, Ernie Hudson, uh, Dan Aykroyd. He's the other guy in that movie, right? Uh, Sigourney Weaver. Uh, great cast. Really, really funny movie. Uh, comedy that combines horror elements with just a lot of really great uh humorous riffing and a really great high concept comedy premise. I think more comedies need to have a high concept premise uh, like Palm Springs this year, Uh, but it's great. And I absolutely love it. Ghostbusters is a great movie and it is my number five favorite horror comedy.
1: Um, Can we keep a running tally of how many times you have offended me this episode?
0: Uh, I don't think we have enough uh, pencils or paper, sir.
1: No. No, the tally marks are probably off the charts at this point. Um, anyway, we'll just get into my number four. We'll talk more about Ghostbusters and why you're wrong to put it on net all the way down at number five.
0: Hey, it made my list, okay? Thank get God. off
1: my back. Had it not even made your list, I might have quit this podcast altogether. Hey, it almost didn't. <laughs> the hell is wrong with you. Anyway, number four. Uh, I went with uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil uh, with uh, Alan Tiddick. Uh, always great, yeah, just a good subversion of the killer hillbilly trope. Uh, just solid, solid comedy all the way through. Officer, we have had a doozy of a day. <laughs> These kids are killing her killing themselves on our property. College kids <laughs> is is fantastic. It's a great
0: movie. Uh, I actually fell outside of my top fifth uh, top ten actually in my into my top fifteen. That's how like stacked my list is like ghostbusters is at number five and tucker and dale versus evil doesn't even hit honorable mention status so it's uh it's it, i got some good ones coming up my number four my number four uh from the aforementioned genius of Wes craven uh we get uh, scream uh 1996's scream which is the uh kickoff of my favorite horror franchise uh really great again subversion of and reinforcement of the classic tropes of the slasher genre. Uh, not uh, more reliant on horror than comedy, but the comedy definitely comes through. Uh, Matthew Lillard and Jamie Kennedy certainly see to that. Uh, it's a very fun, very funny movie. Uh, I tended to kind of try to avoid um, satires here. This is probably the closest I get, and it cracks my my top five simply because it's just a really amazing really great film that i absolutely love and part of my favorite horror franchise so my number four is 1996's scream
1: relevant to mention that nev campbell is signed on to scream five yeah we just found that
0: out this week so that's some good news
1: yeah looking looking forward to that so my number three then um another subversive movie uh happy death day it's so my number okay three. yeah um It's, uh, you know, it's got, it's got a lot of funny moments. It probably leans more on horror than comedy, but. um, What if Groundhog
0: Day, but scary?
1: Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a fantastic concept. Um, high concept
0: horror comedy. I love it.
1: Yeah. High concept horror comedy. Um, it's, it's got a really good story. Um, a really, a really heartfelt story that they expand on in the sequel. The sequel becomes even more heartfelt in my opinion, Um, but a lot less scary a lot less scary they go more sci-fi in the sequel which i'm not opposed to you know give me a whole, I, I give, me a whole like happy, give me a whole happy death day cinematic universe all right um you know they're, they're working for the government now spoilers at the end of the second one so you know oh, you
0: ruined it
1: uh, i mean it's a few years old by now if you haven't seen it yet it um, came out last year did it yep time has no meaning anymore it's uh, correct Anyway, what's your, what's your number three, Stephen?
0: My number three is the classic John Landis film, An American Werewolf in London from 1981. Uh, loved, I recently rewatched it as part of my uh, werewolf uh, education earlier this year, and uh, it's the best werewolf movie ever. Like, it's so good uh, and so funny, uh, but also really legitimately scary with really incredible creature effects um, that are just like jaw dropping even today because they're all practical. Like you can tell they weren't done in a computer and they're great, but also it's really, really funny, particularly Griffin Dunn as the sarcastic dead guy. Who's just kind of following him around and basically his undead Jiminy cricket. Like it's great. It's hilarious. It's one of the greatest horror comedies of all time. Uh, It's actually my number three horror comedy, uh, American werewolf in London. Brett,
1: you're number two. My my number two, uh, definitely more comedy than horror here, but we, you can't go wrong uh, with what we do in the shadows. Is, is my no. number two? You um, can't go wrong. It's it's more. It is more comedy, but there's definitely the horror elements there. I mean, they're vampires. There's uh um their uh their roommate who lives in the basement. Uh, so I can't can't remember the name of. He's definitely more Nosferatu, more scary vampire. Yes. Um, and. Yeah, it's just, it's it's great. It, it leans a little bit in the satire of sure. you know, the whole vampire genre. It's done in, like, a very, you know, uh, what's the word, caring way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you haven't seen the TV series, please go do that immediately. Which I still have not.
0: I need to. I need to just rip that band-aid off and just do it.
1: You really do. The The, the show is the same sort of humor, Um with the same cool. sort of reverence for horror.
0: Taika directs a couple episodes of that, doesn't he?
1: He does, yeah. Even uh, the original cast even shows up. So, which,
0: you gotta love that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The The amount of cameos in that one episode, which I was telling you about before.
0: Right, right. Uh, with the Vampire uh,
1: Council? With the Vampire Council. The amount of cameos in one episode is got to be some sort of record. That's
0: That's great. I love it. Uh, My number two, uh, I mentioned this one a couple weeks ago, when you first broached the topic of horror comedies um, as being one of my favorites from the great Joe Dante, uh, Gremlins to the new batch. I just actually bought it on Blu-ray, came in the mail literally this morning. Uh, I love it. It's great. It's, I think, even better than the original, Uh, one of those rare sequels that is better than the original. Um, It basically involves the Gremlins locked inside Trump Tower in New York and running amok and creating all sorts of havoc, as Gremlins are wont to do. So you've got a lot of the horror elements from the original, but the comedy is basically just turned up to 11. Uh, If Batman Returns was Tim Burton's Look, Tim, You Can Do Whatever You Want, Gremlins 2 is Joe Dante's Look, Joe, Whatever You Want, and so you've got like a Looney Tunes opening sting uh, drawn by the original animators. Uh, you've got homages to Batman and creature features and just all the stuff that Joe Dante loves. He just poured into that movie and it is, it's, it's so good. It's such a great film. It is my number two horror comedy gremlins Two: the new batch.
1: So my number one, I got to preface. Um, yeah. You okay. got
0: to. You got a, Fall on your sword on this
1: one, man. Uh, I mean, yeah. So in that same episode that you just referenced, um, I mentioned that I, I've been a pretty staunch defender that Ghostbusters is not a horror movie. So I did some soul searching. Um, I, I dug deep into myself, and by I dug deep, I mean I watched it again. Because um, you know, when you when you're soul searching, you throw on Ghostbusters. At least I do. Doesn't everybody? Um, I've reassessed. I mean, there's definitely some horror elements. And it, let me get this out of the way before I start rambling. Uh, Ghostbusters is my number one on this list. We're all shocked. Well, some people might be. Not everybody knows me like you do, Steven. Jesus I Christ. Um, Touche. Uh so yeah, there's definitely some horror elements here. Like, you know, when the when the demon dog hands pop out of the chair and pull her into the kitchen. Uh that's pretty scary. Um you know, there is some existential dread that you might feel when Stapa first shows up. There's, you know, the terror dog uh, possessing uh, Lewis, you know, there's and chases the Sc- him down.
0: The Scolari brothers.
1: Well, that's Ghostbusters 2. But,
0: oh, right, 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 right.
1: Um, but the, you say that, but I remember what really triggered this for me is in Ghostbusters 2, when they're in the abandoned subway tunnels and the, this, the um, severed heads show up. When mm-hmm. I was a kid, I covered my eyes during that part, like, because it scared me. So how could I sit here and say that the Ghostbusters movies are not horror when there was a scene I literally couldn't watch till I was like a teenager? So yeah, so Ghostbusters. It is my favorite film of all time. It is my number one horror comedy. I'm just going to take from that
0: that I was right and Ghostbusters is a horror comedy. So
1: yes, you 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 are forgiven.
0: You are forgiven.
1: Please. (laughs) I I beg your forgiveness and I do receive it. And I thank you. (laughs) Uh,
0: my number one, it should come as no surprise to anybody considering how much I raved about it on our Evil Dead episode. Uh, it's Evil Dead 2. It's Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2 uh, for all the reasons that I said on episode four. Uh, I love it. It's great. It is uh, my number one horror comedy uh, and my number two Sam Raimi movie. Uh, I, so very interestingly, um, both of my top two horror comedies are sequels. They are my number two favorite films in each director's filmography as well. Uh, My favorite Giordante movie is Matinee, and my favorite Sam Raimi movie is Spider-Man 2. So, I don't know. There's something to that. I thought that was fun and weird. Uh, Brett, were there any films that you considered but didn't make the cut?
1: Uh, Evil Dead 2 was definitely one of them. Um, I would hope so. Army of Darkness. I mean, Army of Darkness and Evil Dead 2 both uh, would probably show up on an honorable mentions really pretty much any movie on your top five with the exception of gremlins too. i don't really have the fondness for the gremlin franchise that i probably should have
0: i honestly i it's not what i grew up with but i rewatched it I, I rewatched it this year when i was going through dante's movies and it it really holds up those movies are great
1: yeah which i, I should probably go back and watch them um but uh yeah uh you know cabin in the woods maybe kind of surprised
0: beetlejuice didn't crack your top 5 No,
1: that was a very tough decision. It, it it was it was duking it out between Beetlejuice and Shaun of the Dead, but I gave it to Shaun of the Dead just because I feel like I feel like there's more there was more horror there and like, you know, I had I had a bunch of movies on the list that maybe leaned more into comedy than horror. Um so I wanted to balance that a little bit. Um sure. But I mean, you know, ask me tomorrow when it might be Beetlejuice at number 5. Yeah. Sure.
0: I mean, Beetlejuice almost made mine, but after a conversation you and I had earlier in the week, I decided to knock it out and put it on Scream. So everything kind of got shuffled around there as a result. But uh, so Beetlejuice was definitely one I considered. Uh, the 1985 film Reanimator is one that I considered because that movie is great. Speaking of Jeffrey Combs, the 1996 film The Frighteners, uh, Shaun of the Dead, and Cabin in the Woods both are ones that I considered as well uh, for my top five. But ultimately, they all kind of uh, fell. Fell a little short of my top five. Uh, Brett, any other final thoughts or feelings regarding uh, this movie? Um, or life that, in general?
1: No. it's It's been a rough week. but It has. But Beetlejuice, you know, helped me through it. And, and we you...
0: finally got this episode recorded. Hey, after yeah. a little week and a half of trying, we got it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, if you haven't seen Beetlejuice, go see it. It, it holds up. It's Absolutely. A it's Absolutely. not only a classic horror movie, a classic comedy. It is a classic film in general. It's
0: just a good movie,
1: yeah. It's just a good movie, um, definitely. Um, and
0: and I guess that's all for for us uh, today. So uh, you can check us out online, hit us up on social medias. We are on Twitter. We are at D I S E N F R A N C H P O D on Twitter. Uh, And that is our email address as well, disenfranchepod at gmail.com, to send us any of your feedback or if you just want to, you know, give us some attaboys. Uh, Make sure you rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Five-star ratings and reviews really do help uh, with visibility and let other people know that we're a podcast uh, to be enjoyed by all. Um, I can be found on Twitter and Letterboxed at Chewy Walrus. Brett, where can we find you?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Fire. All right. And, uh, Brett, what movie are we covering next week for week four
0: of our five-week Halloween October Spookython?
1: Oh. Oh, boy. This is a big one. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if it's big. But it's... Uh, it's the year.
0: oldest movie we've covered so far, for sure.
1: It is. Uh, it is 1979's Dracula. Ah, with Frank Langella, uh, the
0: first attempt to reboot the Universal Monsters franchise, uh, and we will talk about it all next week. So until then, I'm Stephen Foxworthy for Brett Wright and myself. Have yourself a spooky little Halloween.
1: Ooh.